Hey everybody, Daniel Patrick here live from my hotel room in Abingdon, Virginia. And as always, is being brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Lots of people's favorite website uh, at, at this week at this, uh, at this incredible camp. And also brought to you by Acoustic Disc. Go to AcousticDisc.com, sign up for their email list. You get a free treat of the week. They send you a song once a week from the incredible catalog. And they also have a great podcast that Dog and Danny Barnes do called Acoustic Encounters. So thank you to Acoustic Disc. Uh, I am at uh, the Monroe Mandolin Camp. I've been here for the last couple of days, and I have had the absolute best time. Um, my face hurts from smiling so much. What an incredible community of people. If you love Monroe-style music, this is the place for you. This is your tribe, as they say on the internet. Um, it, it, it's, it's incredible. You know, Heidi explained a little bit of it to me over the course of conversing and talking about coming over here to do this. And it, you, you can't even put it into words what it's, what it's like here. It's, it's, a, it's a blast. So if you've ever had any interest in coming to the camp, I'd sign up for year 11 if I were you. It's incredible. If you love this style of music, this is, this is the place to be. And so I really want to thank Heidi and Mike and everyone here at the the Monroe Mandolin Camp, campers included, for inviting me in and just being so cool. And I've had the best time, so I want to thank you all for for having me. Um, it, it's been a blast. I recorded two episodes while I was here, and, and so Wednesday night they had a mandolin tasting, and it was incredible. Campers were encouraged to place out their mandolins. And they put them all on the floor. I got some pictures on Instagram and Facebook. And some of the instructors and, and Paul Duff got up there. And then they just randomly would pick up a mandolin, talk about it, and play a tune. And how I think I'm going to release that is I'm going to do it in five different episodes. There were 25 mandolins. And so how that worked was they would talk about it. And it, it was about two hours long. And so I think the easiest way to do it is I'll just edit uh, one round of it, post it up as a bonus episode randomly throughout the next few weeks, and there'll be five of those. And then the one that is airing today was was also just an absolute pleasure. It was a live show with all of the instructors. You're going to hear it. I mean, they're, they're the best in the biz for the style of music. You're going to hear about it from Heidi and, and Mike here in a minute themselves at the beginning of the episode. So again, thank you to the Monroe Mandolin Camp and everybody who's been here. And I hope I get to come back next year. I would love it. This was an absolute blast. Also, I've extended the, the the giveaway tickets for the Blue Highway Fest just one more time through the weekend so this episode could air because Tim Stafford from Blue Highway is here and he talks a little bit about it. So don't forget, if you want to go to this festival, uh, send me an email with tickets in the description or go to Facebook where the posts are with the poster and Instagram and just reply, tickets and you'll be entered in the drawing. So let's get to the sponsors, Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Who do you ask? Well, how about Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, he's here, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, Ian Curry, High-quality, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation to tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs. To play the best part, of course, is you get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code MANDOLINBEER. That's all one word at checkout. 
Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Stringjoy, Stringjoy just started carrying mandolin strings. Um, Fretboard Journal has an incredible interview with Scott from Stringjoy. Go to Fretboard Journal and listen to this podcast. This is, it's, it's the most incredible story about how to make strings. It's, it's, I would have never even thought that you, it would be possible to make strings, and Scott has done it. His mandolin strings are great, and Scott sent me a care package to bring to IBMA. So I'm going to have some Stringjoy strings to give away at IBMA. So come and see me and Keith Billick, the Picky Fingers podcast. I believe our booth is 620. Uh, but you, if you're not going to be at IBMA, you can try these strings yourself, and you can get yourself 10% off by using the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Tone Slab Picks. Go to ToneSlabs.com. Get yourself a slab of tone. They have all the shapes and sizes that you've grown to love. They're incredible. I actually gave a couple away here at the camp, a couple of my personal picks, and people love them. So if you go to ToneSlabs.com and order one, they're incredible. They're also going to be at IBMA, and I'm also going to get a little special delivery, I believe, from them at IBMA. I'll tell you more about that next week. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Saw some Ellis Mandolins here. Speaking of being here, would we even be here today if it wasn't for Bill Monroe playing that incredible Lloyd Lore mandolin? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say, but I'll tell you what. Lloyd Lore has played a big part in the style of music we play, and Roger Simonoff has dedicated a huge portion of his life to put together this incredible book called The Life and Work of Lloyd Lore. Calling it just a book is actually selling the book way short. It's 200 pages. It's got more than 320 photographs. It's incredible. If you're a lover of the mandolin or you have a lover of the mandolin in your life, you need to get him this book. It's only $49.95. It's available at SiminoffBooks.com. It is worth more than that. It's, it's beautifully done. And again, Roger's dedicated just so much of his life to this, and you can you see it in every page. So go to SiminoffBooks.com and order a copy of that book. And also, all of, all of Roger's books, they're all great. And one of my favorite stores, Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new and used vintage and fretted and stringed instruments for the experienced beginner player. Their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now, in their 51st year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com or go to see them at IBMA. I'm stoked to see my friends from Elderly Instruments. Also, geez, I forgot, um, I've got a whole bunch of new merch coming. There's more hats coming. I've got... Uh, some, I've got some shirts designed. I watched the, the the movie Air, and I was inspired by Nike. And so I've got some shirts made up. I'll post pictures of them. I'll have them. They're being delivered to my house today, although I'm not there. Uh, it's a cool picture. You know, the old F-style mandolin. It says, mandolin, just play it in the very similar font that Nike uses. They look great. And I've got some of the red mandolin stickers. Those are new coming in. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to be at IBMA. So... Thank you for listening. You guys are the best. You're going to love this episode. This was so much fun. So thank you again for listening. Everybody have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 197 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast brought to you live. 
the Monroe Mandolin Camp. I'm so excited to be here. Before we kick things off, the people hosting us today, we're at the Southwest Virginia Cultural Center, and the folks from the Crooked Road Virginia Heritage Trail just want to do a little quick introduction before we start the music. So everybody, attention to the front, please. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Tyler Hughes. I'm the executive director here at the Crooked Road. We want to welcome everyone to the Southwest Virginia Cultural Center and Marketplace this afternoon. We're so excited to have Monroe Mandolin Camp and Mandolins and Beer podcast in the building with us. The Crooked Road is celebrating 20 years next year in 2024 of traditional old time and bluegrass music here in Southwest Virginia. And we're so thrilled that you all picked Abingdon, Virginia to be here with us today. So thank you all. Hope you have a great time. All right. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this. As I mentioned, this is the uh, Monroe Mandolin Camp. It's a real honor to be here, and, and I wish you people could see the, uh, just the talent on this stage right now. It's unbelievable. Um, this is the 10th annual. This is the 10th one. Yeah, it's the 10th annual, I guess, right? The 10th one that you've done. And one thing I've learned in my lifetime is nothing lasts this long unless it's good. And so that's one thing. But there's also, I think besides the fact that you bring in the cream of the crop players for this style of music, there's an incredible message that you're trying to get across with this camp too. It's more than just about um, teaching music lessons. It's a whole thing. And so I'd like to have Heidi Herzog and Mike Compton talk a little bit about why this Monroe camp has been such a success. So put your hands together for Heidi and Mike, everybody. Thank you, Daniel. We You're get, welcome. Get, Thanks, Dan. Get Mama Bear up here, all situated, and we'll be ready to go. I guess let's let's talk, just maybe talk about the initial idea behind behind Camp One when you started this. Uh, just briefly, there was up in Owensboro, there was a Monroe style mandolin camp that they decided not to do anymore, and. Uh, one of our longtime uh, participants who isn't here today came up to uh, Mike and me and said, hey, this is really important music. And I looked at Mike and I looked at John Gardinsky, who a lot of us know, and I'm like, how hard could it be to put on a mandolin camp? <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it's, it's a lot of planning and, and uh, a lot of times I'm two years out with planning on locations and, and staff and people. and. Uh, we started off, uh, uh, our plan was within the first five years not to just have mandolins, but to bring in the guitar, the banjo, the fiddle, the upright bass, songwriting. And uh, we did that. Um, and we just continue to grow with um, vocal harmony and doing cross-cultural uh, collaborations and uh, something that's, that's really important. Um, in one of our camps in 2018, and Daniel and I were talking about this the other day, that uh, we had, I think, what did we have? Eight or nine bluegrass, original bluegrass boys with yeah. us. And, and yeah. I was, um, everybody knows and loves Byron Berline and, and Betty, and, and we were talking. And, and I said, you know, what's really important to us here also is, um, while Bill gets the credit and the, and the um, royalties, that it was uh, that it's the it's the collaboration of his bluegrass boys that he had with them, and it is, you know, whether it's the the feel of the bow which differentiates between the players or the how heavy on the downstroke, but but the bluegrass boys to to me and and to Mike also for 
getting the credit for really making this music alive because throughout his career with all his different bluegrass boys, you know, there's different styles and, and different ways that songs are approached. And, um, and I just said, I just really want to honor and acknowledge you for that. And um, Betty turned to me and Byron turned to me and they said, no one has ever acknowledged us for that before, so thank you. And that's part of what's really important in this camp for me and for us. It's, a, it's has always been a community effort in Bill's band. Um, some people have gotten gotten credit for it, but it's always been a community effort writing, writing songs and, and writing the tunes. There are a few tunes that evolved over the course of about 30 years that were played in the band and different different side men that were working with Bill at the time added little bits and pieces of it. So it's always been, as far as the music goes, a community effort within the band. It wasn't just Bill writing all this stuff. Uh, because like I said, he of course he got <laughs> he got the royalties for it, but you know, he was the band leader, so that's that's the way things were. But it's always been more about the community of musicians that was there. And, and we wanted to make sure I, that we acknowledged them uh, it, initially whenever the, the, the first camp sort of went away, I, probably at least two dozen guys, it was, it was middle-aged men at that point, <laughs> came up and said, we, what are we going to do? And they, I could see that they were seriously concerned. Says, I don't, wait, there's no place for us to go. There's no place for us to go to get together to play this music that we love. And we, it's one of the main things we talked about. I felt sorry for them. Because it, it hit me, you know, I, I love it, but I didn't realize that it meant that much to that many other people. And we thought, well, we need to, we need to present a refuge of some kind and, and just have it so people, there are, is some place for the people that love this stuff so much could go. Yeah, yeah and, and we, have, we have people from, uh, I think it's 17 or 18 countries who come, who fly in for this, all of the United States, and, uh, and it's a, a welcoming spot for women, for children, for people from anywhere. So that, that's really what's important. It's, and this group of people is, y'all really are pretty, <laughs> so welcoming and wonderful. And it's community, so that's, that's bluegrass music. Building community through music is one of my little hashtags, but I really feel that that's true, so. And with the effort, the effort to make it more than just a, a, a boys club has, has paid off in spades all the way around. Um, it's, it's so much better now, the demographic that we have, to having male and female, and, and old and young, it, it makes it better for everybody. Cool. One more question before Heidi. I know Heidi's like, ah, I, I got my part up there. But, you know, I, I, you, put a lot of work, you put a lot of work into this, obviously. I mean, I see it every second I've been here. You know, it's been a nonstop thing. But how does something like this, I mean, I mean, you have a community who wants to do it, but what, 10 years, what's the key to, to making that happen? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be an 11th year just judging from the group of people who've been here maybe 10 years or so, and everybody's so excited to see each other. But there's got to be something on your end, Heidi, that you're doing that makes this still possible. I love trying to figure out, okay, you have your dream baseball teams. We have our dream instructor and working musicians who are out on the road doing their festivals and teaching and living their 
music life. So um, sometimes it's a jigsaw puzzle. Sometimes it's like, uh, I'm, I'm a teacher and I love organizing. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know that it's not possible, so why don't I just try and do it? And um, we've had some pretty amazing events with Bluegrass Boys or um, that concert in 2018 went three hours or our second year where we had Tom Ewing and uh, Blake Williams, Mark Embry, who else was? Uh, there were a couple Glenn, more who Glenn came. Glenn Duncan. Glenn Duncan, Roland White, and just sitting, and I'm like, no, we have to go to the Station Inn or wherever to play a concert, and everybody's like, no, one more question. So it's just a joy to put it on, and it's it's invigorating to me, so I enjoy doing it. Yeah. And and there's there's, I have community around the world, and I get back, I think, more than y'all, so I'm just being selfish on that. So thank you all. <laughs> yeah, well, we should give a big round of applause to Heidi Herzog, everybody. <laughs> As she mentioned, talk about dream teams. I mean, I'm looking at the lineup up here. I looked at the instructors, you know, before I, the list of it before I came up here. And just hearing the music coming out of these rooms this morning, I mean, geez, I basically floated down to John Keith's room here in that high lonesome sound coming from his, his classroom. Um, I'm going to get to all the, uh, all the people who are up on the stage. Um, one of the things you touched on a bit is, is Monroe the different bluegrass boys and the different generations, and we were talking about that. And, and that's what helped Bill grow and change. Every time there was a different lineup, his music swerved a little bit. And the focus this year is 50 to 58, and uh, it's going to be really interesting to, uh, to hear some of the styles. So I'm going to introduce the mandolin players just real quick here, and then we'll, as we get going, we'll talk to the players themselves as well. So we got Mike Compton up there on the uh, mandolin. <clears throat> John Reichman. John Keith with a new mandolin. And Jeff Burke over there with a beautiful mandolin as well. Now, I know we're going to kick off a song, but before we do that, Mike, uh, it, so, you know, I have a list of, you know, some talking points from you, and it's obvious your love for Monroe. I mean, your, your name is synonymous with Monroe's style. And what is it about it, though, that drives you because you don't, yeah, you don't have to do this. Everybody knows your name is already is ingrained with Monroe style as it could be, but you, there's something about it that drives you to keep it, and I just love it. And I, just, what is it? Um, well, it's the, it's the honesty and the intensity of it and, and the blues mm -hmm. parts of it. The blue, the blue part is probably my favorite of all of it. Um, Nobody else that played a mandolin that way that really, really took like country blues and and added it to to fiddle music. Uh, that's that's the main thing. And just that Bill played in an unapologetic fashion, and uh, and he's a, sort of like an impressionistic painter to me. Is the way the way he plays melody lines and and uh, illustrates ideas is not really spelled out. I don't I don't like. You know, having all the details, just you know, give me the give me the main points, and that's what I get from him. And I, and it, I think it it gives you, it gives you an opportunity to fill in the blanks, the way you want to, more or less. Basically, it, with his style, uh, 
he, he just gives you the important bits, and I, I think everybody could, could listen to the way he plays and interpret it slightly different uh, based on whatever their musical backgrounds are. So it, it's, it's, just, it's, re, it's just the meat of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so many things are implied right, because of all the slippery stuff and, and, the, and the rockabilly part of it. That's, that's what drives me to it. It's, it's, and at this point, it's the, the, the style that I understand the best. I didn't, I didn't grow up with it. I, I grew up in Mississippi, and my parents had Ella Fitzgerald records and, and Herb Alpert and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, when I first heard Bill play, he sounded out of tune and, and uh, well, a, a little bit primal. <laughs> I kind of went, ooh, who is that? But it, it's like, you know, you, you probably know better than anybody in here. It's like learning how to drink beer. It grows on you. <laughs> or, espresso. or espresso, yeah. <laughs> well, let's, um, th- this is a great example because how you said is everybody interprets it a little bit differently, and that was the seed that I first planted in your head when I talked about maybe trying to do something like this. And, and um, we have four great mandolin players up there. And the beauty is, even though you guys have heard the same version of these songs, you've all interpreted it differently, which just fascinates me. And so what's, what's the first song you want to kick off with with this incredible lineup? Well, I mean, that's, but that's, that's the thing that Bill wanted everybody to do. He just said he wanted to take the music and, 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 and study it and and learn what it's about and you and play it your own way. Yeah. So that's that's I think that's what we're accomplishing. That's great. Yeah. What's yeah. the first one? First one, what you all gonna kick off with? I bet it's a fiddle kickoff, is it not? Alright, what tune? It'll be the old panhandle country there. All right.
fantastic. Man, now if you're listening to this podcast at home and that doesn't make you feel something, then you might want to check with the doctor. I'm sure your heart's working properly right now. So, John Reichman, on a song like that, what is your thought process and in, in your approach when you're, when you're playing that song? What are you thinking about when you hear it and try to, and try to put it in your voice? Well, I guess it kind of depends. I mean, if I was the only mandolin player, I might try and play it a bit more like I learned it from Bill Monroe's playing. But since there's all these great Monroe players here, I ended up throwing a Jethro Burns lick in there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which I guess they had a friendly feud with each other, Bill and Jethro. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I try and, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I love the original recording of that. And uh, I try and play that solo. But, um, but if it comes around again, I might open it up and play more. Like my background in pl playing mandolin initially was more fiddle tune oriented, um, not so much Monroe style. And um, like where I grew up in Northern California, there were n no bluegrass players that I knew of. And my exposure was television shows. So I'd see the Dillards in, on the Andy Griffith Show and Flat and & Scruggs. And, uh, and then I'd see the John Hartford Aeroplane record on there. And uh, so that was the music I had access to. And I actually, I remember seeing Bill Monroe on the PBS station at a folk festival. And um, I'd heard of Bill Monroe. I knew he was the guy. And, uh, but the tune they happened to air was like Orange Blossom Special. So he was just playing rhythm. I thought, what's the big deal? <laughs> but, but, you know, as I got more and more into the music, I was exposed to more traditional bluegrass. I lived, you know, close to San Francisco, and there are some great traditional bands there, like High Country with Butch Waller playing mandolin, fantastic Monroe-style player, and the Phantoms of the Opry that Pat Enright used to be in, different folks. So I, I became more and more exposed to it. And also I grew up with a guy named Kevin Johnson who has been an attendant at this camp and he's a wonderful mandolin player. And he was always into um, the more hardcore stuff and that, and I, I'm thankful for that because that exposed me to the high and lonesome sound, that one LP, I thought that was one of my favorite bluegrass records. So anyway, uh, I'm rambling on, but, but it just, it kind of depends on the context of what I'm playing. But, mm -hmm. but I love Monroe style stuff, but it, it, I came to it having already played more like, you know, trying to, I, I played guitar, so I, you know, tried to play like Doc Watson and that kind of playing. So that's influenced uh, the way I play on some of these Monroe tunes. But I, I did go back and learn some of those solos, like the way he plays uh, the mandolin solo on Cheyenne, say, you know, that very aggressive, bluesy, downstrokey stuff. And, and I got to agree with Mike, you know, the, the bluesy part of his playing is what is the most appealing. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think what you're saying, that's a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast may be able to relate that, you know, you, you, we all get into mandolin playing and music differently. And sometimes it's not the Monroe that opens it up. And you kind of find your way back there. And it's one of the things I think that maybe for me I found intimidating, especially was like, it sounds so easy. And then you sit down to try and learn it. And it's not easy at all. No, no, it's, it's so it's, complex. And which is a good reason people should come to the, the camp because you got the best instructors teaching it in all styles of it, I would say. So, and speaking of that, let's get over to the guitar player over there, Tim Stafford. Everybody, put your hands together for Tim. <laughs> Tim, real quick, just for people who might not be familiar with you, listening to a mandolin podcast, what do you, what are you currently up to? And and yeah, tell people about yourself. Well, I've been uh, 
playing in the group Blue Highway since 1994. We're celebrating 30 years of playing together next year. Congratulations. So, uh, still got four of the same guys that we started out with in the band. And um, this year I'm the artist in residence at uh, ETSU in Johnson City at the university at the Bluegrass program there. And that's something Mike did for the last two years. So I'm glad to be involved in that. And uh, we got a Blue Highway Festival coming up uh, October 11th through the 14th in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, uh, bluehighwayfest.com. So. And they're giving away tickets to mandolins and beer listeners. So if That's you're right. listening, send me an email that says tickets in the subject, and you could win a set of two or four-day passes and go see Tim and Blue Highway. So that's awesome. So what is it about the Monroe music, especially 50 to 58? Again, that's what we're talking about um, this at the camp this year. You know, what is it about the guitar playing for you that stands out that's a little bit different from the other eras? Well, I mean, this is uh, the generation of, or the era of Jimmy Martin and Ed Mayfield. Uh, they played on roughly, um, well, 75% of all of the Decca cuts. And such different style. Jimmy was the first major bluegrass player to play with a flat pick. And uh, that style that he had that was aggressive and fed off of Bill Monroe, they fed off of each other, right up in each other's face. I think that had a lot to do with the way that they came up with this hard-edged sound with the material that Bill was coming up with. And these duets that they did together were just insanely good. And Ed Mayfield added his own thing to that, playing with a thumb pick and a finger pick and uh, doing an incredible amount of intricate runs and some great harmony singing with Bill too. So it's one of the best periods for Bill Monroe's music. I don't think you can argue with that because of the material for one thing is just incredible uh, a lot of the standards that we have in bluegrass now came from this deca period for bill monroe but guitar wise there's a lot to dig into there for <laughs> rhythm and we've been trying to do that in our class this this time talking about g runs and hammer g's and all of these different kinds of rhythm strokes and uh, there's there's a lot of them and they made a huge difference in the sound of the band. Wasn't just different guitar player. Jimmy's little rumble that he did, you know, with the uh, made a huge difference in the sound of Bill Monroe's music. I think, you know, and that wasn't all he did, you know. So. Yeah. Good. Did, did Jimmy Martin, did he officially give us the G-Run? I mean, that's like the... Uh, no, Lester Flat. Lester Flat did. That. did. That's yeah. right. I knew that. That's why they called it the Lester Flat. But it was only... Uh, right. You know, and then Jimmy did that too when he started. He picked up that. But then later on, when he recorded uh, Uncle Penn, he added a little bit to it, you know, right. and then it went on from there. You've got... Uh, about 50 different ways to make a G run. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love it, man. I couldn't imagine it without it. What's a little, just to give us a little bit of a, a little sampling of some of that guitar style here with the, uh, with the group of people you got up there and give us a few seconds of some of that. Hey, you could do Uncle Pen. Go with A. Just to, to highlight that G run that kind of took everybody's surprise back there when it first came out in the early 50s. Uh, a bunch of all oh yeah, <laughs> all day long. Is somebody gonna sing or you know me too? Can you just kick it off? 
I can attempt to. question for you Tim real quick piece of advice for mandolin players trying to play the style of music we talked about before some do it well some just do it how can you do it better ha, good question for a guitar player uh, <laughs> well you get to hear them you get to hear all the versions of it yeah I mean I've, I've played with some great mandolin players you know not as many Monroe style players uh, but Adam Steffi that I played with for a long time uh, had an uh, incredible timing and was a great player you know and so I felt like when I played with him and Barry Bales and Allison Krause's group, we just played to the groove. We played to what fit. And I wouldn't play the same with him as I would with Mike, for example, because that's a different language that he speaks on the instrument. So that's the way I feel like I just need to support that. And the best way to do that is to play Jimmy Martin, Ed Mayfield type things on, while I'm trying to back him up. Uh, totally different way that I would play with, with somebody like Adam. So, 
Great. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate it, ma'am. Everybody, Tim Stafford, put your hands together. <laughs> Tim also wrote the definitive book on Tony Rice. If you don't own that book, it's, you know, you buy it. If you're listening online, go online and buy it. It's on your website, right, Tim? Yeah, or, yeah it's, it's incredible. Uh, right next to Tim, before we get back to the, the mandolin players, is Ainsley Porchak. How you doing, Ainsley? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. She over there on fiddle kicked it off right there. And I guess same sort of question for you. What is it from this era, the 50 to 58 era, that really stands out for you as a fiddle player? Well, the 50s kind of ushered in the, a different style of fiddling in a lot of ways. This was when Monroe really started incorporating the twin fiddle and even triple fiddle sound. So that's one aspect that I really personally enjoy. Um, another thing I love is that two of the most influential bluegrass fiddlers, in my opinion, of all time, uh, got their start with Monroe during this period, both Kenny Baker and Bobby Hicks. I love both of their styles and draw very, very highly on those. And while the 40s team had wonderful things going on, and I've spoken before at camp about how much I love Chubby Wise, to me there is a new kind of refined fiddler sound, um, very double stop heavy. Um, blues definitely was still incorporated, but technically it brought it to another level. And that even changes in how you support the mandolin players in a band if you're a fiddler. So to me it's just kind of that... It, it is definitely that bluesy, lonesome, hard edge sound, but there's a, there's a technical aspect that let the fiddlers become more free to uh, express the music, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. What's a tip that you would say for fiddlers? Like, what's a way somebody who might be getting into this be like, oh, I want the, this bluesy thing is coming up now, you know? What's some, maybe a tip or a piece of advice, aside from coming to this camp, obviously, <laughs> I'll say that again. Um, but, you know, people who want to get in this, where, what's a good way to start? What's something technique-wise maybe to, to kind of look at and start experimenting with? Well, um, the first thing I do when I teach this class is I start my fiddlers off with a historical survey, because in order to figure out where you're going to take the music, you need to figure out where it's been. And I like to encourage them to kind of show the spirit of the music um, while not copying 100%, you know, definitely being inspired by that. So kind of feeling, feeling out how you, how you want your style to be. I do encourage everybody to listen to those early recordings, but then listening to in other instruments as well, uh, listening to the sound of the mandolin, uh, bringing in that shuffle beat that can inspire you in some instances. Uh, some of the some of the banjo things even can be inspirational too. Uh, don't don't limit yourself to just one thing. Think think broadly about the music yeah. while still being inspired inspired by that period. And I did forget to ask you. Who do you play? What's your, current, what's your current project so people can check you out and where can they find you? Sure. Um, the banjo player that I'm sharing the stage with over here, Lincoln Hensley, and I have our own band, the Tennessee Bluegrass Band. And we kind of specialize in a modernized form of vintage bluegrass. And he'll be able to tell you a little bit more about that as well. But we're currently touring with them and have a new project coming out very soon. Fantastic. Well, let's let's get a little fiddle example of some of this stuff here with a with this incredible band, yo. You'll have to forgive me. My E string broke approximately 20 minutes before we started the podcast. Classic, right? So I'm assuming <laughs> frantically. Yeah, no worries.
fantastic. John Keith, when you get to a song like that, like for Roanoke or for any of these songs, what's your, what's your thought process when you're approaching these mandolin tunes? Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, that one gets a lot of notes going by pretty fast, and it's, uh, that one's easy to play too much in. Mm -hmm. uh, as Mike explained earlier, the, the impressionistic approach that Bill took a lot of times, I think our minds can subliminally put notes in there that, that aren't there. Uh, we hate open spaces, so we, we have to invent notes or uh, we just don't like these empty spaces. We think there has to be a, a sound every, every second or every millisecond, and that's not always the case. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, you, gotta have the, you gotta let the notes have time to live. Uh, before you play the next one, yeah. and so it's easy to uh, to overplay a tune like that. But and again, you know, it goes by so fast, even at a moderate tempo, uh, that gets that gets down to the nitty gritty. And and I don't know how much Monroe actually thought about. Well, I don't want to put too many notes in this, but I mean, it's just there was a feeling that that uh, complemented what he or there there was a sound that he played that complemented what he was thinking about. And uh, you, you got to let the notes live their own life before you, you before you cut that one off with the next one. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important to try to remember. Mike talked about growing up and you know listening to Ella Fitzgerald. John talked about coming coming about a different way. When did you discover Bill Monroe first, or did you go back and find Bill Monroe? I had to go back. Uh, Dad always had. Uh, you know, he called it country and western, both kinds, country and western. So, <laughs> um, but he had an eight-track player that he took out of a 67 Chrysler Newport put in the basement with a converter on it, and there was all these country eight-tracks. And I found this one that was, I didn't know who it was, I just found that I liked it. And I, and I kept going back to this one, and it was ended up being a Flatt and Scruggs town and country. And then uh, started playing guitar when I was nine, and then I couldn't make any money doing that, so I got a banjo. And when I was about 12 and I couldn't make any money doing that, so uh, dad bought me a mandolin and I started making a little bit of money, so that's what I stuck with. And then I ordered Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Time album out of county sales, and when I heard that mandolin break on Blue Night, that's the one that, I mean, that's what did it right there. Yeah. Do you know, do you know that lick right off top? Am I calling, am I going to put you on the spot with that or? Just like that. That's so great, man. Oh, thank you, John. Yes, sir. Congrats on that new mandolin. Thank you. It's a beaut. Let's get over to uh, Lincoln Hensley real quick here on the banjo. Everybody, Lincoln Hensley. Lincoln, real quick here, just kind of maybe carry on. You and Ainsley are in a band together. Talk a little bit more about that. What yeah, else you been up to? That's right. We started the uh, Tennessee Bluegrass Band along with uh, our mandolin player, Tim Laughlin, uh, it's been almost three years ago, I guess now, and uh, we play all the time doing that. And uh, Ainsley does some teaching up at the college, and I uh, fill in with different bands here and there. Yeah. And uh, we got a new album coming out here pretty soon. Got a 
a single off our new record. It's going to be coming out next Friday. Oh, right so on, man. Yeah. We'll be looking out for that. Yeah, great. Congrats. Yeah. That's awesome. So what is it about in this 50 to 58 style? What is it for you um, that you find really stands out in the banjo world? Well, um, it's, it's cool with the banjo because uh, about two years before that, the bluegrass banjo atom was split with Earl Scruggs. And uh, so all these guys uh, from the 50s on, uh, not necessarily were copying him note for note, but they probably heard the same thing that the rest of the banjo players heard and, uh, and wanted to do that. And uh, it's neat hearing how those really early styles and really early players like uh, Rudy Lyle and Gar Bowers and uh, uh, several different people, those, those early guys, Sonny Osborne, uh, how their styles started right around that time when there wasn't you know, uh, many people doing that. And uh, I was very fortunate to uh, actually get to study under uh, the late Sonny Osborne for about eight years. And he was, uh, as far as I know, the youngest bluegrass boy. He was hired at uh, 14 years old uh, to Bill Monroe. And uh, I got to know him for about eight years and study and, and learn from him. And uh, that was really cool. But the, the just grit and aggressiveness of those early banjo players, uh, I really love. Rudy Lyle. The, the way he thought, we went over that in our banjo class today, actually some recordings of Rudy, and uh, it's, uh, it's like sporadic almost, the, the stuff he would play. It's, you could tell that uh, a lot of it wasn't necessarily rehearsed, and, uh, but it, it came out really good. It's right on the edge. I, I was talking to the class today. It's like a, uh, you see a, a surfer like on the edge of a wave, and he's... He's not looking behind him at what's going on. He's just trying not to fall off the board. And that kind of felt, you know, a lot of times I hear like uh, White House Blues and the stuff that he did on uh, Rawhide. I mean, it's, he's flying by the seat of his pants, but I love it. I love the way he played, you know, really aggressive and right on the edge. Yeah. Well, how about giving maybe a little bit of example of some of that uh, on the edge sort of playing here? Okay. Everybody with the, uh, anybody listening at home, they're capoing. Not the mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the really, really cool thing I'll add to this. Um, uh, the original record of, well, uh, the original Monroe record of this come out in what, 52? Yeah, 52, 53. And uh, it was 14-year-old Sonny Osborne was playing on this. And uh, there's a really cool story I'll, I'll tell really quick. Uh, Flatt & Scruggs had recorded this on Mercury just a little bit before Monroe's record came out. And I think uh, it was them being not so kind to their old boss <laughs> when they released this before Monroe got it out. And uh, I don't know the exact details, but Sonny, uh, being 14 and a kid, fresh off the farm around Monroe, he said he, he worked for him for like two weeks before he ever even spoke to him. Uh, and uh, they went into the recording studio to do this song, and uh, he didn't know exactly how to play it because he was afraid that if he played it too much like Flat & Scruggs' record, that would cause friction. And so, uh, you know, the main thing you got to remember here is he's 14, and he asked Monroe, uh, you know, how do you, do you want me to play this like the other record? And Monroe said, oh, what other record? <laughs> and he said, well, there's, there's another record some boys has got out on this. And uh, he said, you, you play what I play. 
And so the recording of that is uh, his 14-year-old take on what Bill Monroe played that day. So uh, wow. it's it's interesting. Yeah, but, that's a great uh, story, man. I'll try Thank to you. I'll try to play it through. Uh, we'll get the mandolin to kick it off, but when I take my break, I'll try to play. A portion of it, at least, like the 14-year-old Sonny Osborne. And that'll probably earn me one haunting from it. <laughs> Not that strange. I think it's safe to say Sonny would be proud. I think it's safe to say that. That's great, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, you know, Ainsley, I forgot to ask you this too, so I'll ask you both this since you're right by one mic, but for mandolin players listening, what are, what's some advice that you would give when you're playing um, with mandolin players that would maybe help them, the difference between someone who's doing a great job and somebody who's just there as the mandolin player? Uh, Lincoln can probably speak to this too, but to me, a great deal relies in context. If I'm playing with a Flat and Scruggs inspired band versus a Monroe inspired band, uh, I will back differently. And I've done both. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you in a Monroe setting, uh, the fiddler is not really a chopping instrument. The mandolin is going to rely on the right hand shuffle. Um, from the pick. So that's not something you have to worry about. Your job is to stay in the background, maybe provide some fills, 
Uh, maybe some long double stop bows, but just stay out of the way. The mandolin player has their own rhythm. Don't mess with it. <laughs> That's kind of the philosophy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was the question again? Yeah, for, for mandolin, how about let's go from a mandolin perspective. What's something that you hear in mandolin players that would make, um, you know, what makes a good mandolin player a great mandolin player? Uh, in this style for me two main things is uh a really solid foundation on the rhythm the chop uh i the two instruments i probably listen the most to when i play is the bass and the mandolin and the way they work together and uh as a mandolin player i i would think that honing in with that rhythm section and really listening to the guitar and the, and the bass and and getting that uh forward lean to uh, a lot of the the songs uh helps and uh other than that i i think the most thing that i've looked for in mandolin players is the ones that play the melody yeah <laughs> I, I really seem to favor those <laughs> i think people forget about the uh sometimes like people that. forget there's a melody when it comes to a solo <laughs> yeah yeah I, I like that a lot that's great. <laughs> Mike's got his arms crossed over there. <laughs> Mike, Mike does a very fine job at yes, playing yeah. the melody. No, I just said, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the, uh, the mandolin player I haven't had a chance to speak with yet over there. How about Jeff Burke over there, everybody? Howdy. Hey, man. Uh, Jeff, one of the things I, I love, D's Lounge. Jeff manages D's Lounge over there. And that, if you are in Nashville, there's two places. Forget Broadway. Forget Broadway. You go to D's Lounge and you go to the Station Inn. That's my. If you're gonna have a good time, if you play this type of music, those are the two places. And have a great job over there at D's, buddy. Well, thanks, man. We're uh, we're honored to be mentioned in the same breath as Station Inn. They've been there for 43, 45 years. No, sorry, they're the same age as me. 48 years. And. Uh, <laughs> We've been there for seven next month, so um, yeah. we love roots music. We love to feature bluegrass and old-time music there. And if you are in Nashville, please come by and see us. That's what I spend the majority of my time doing, is making sure we get great bands, a great place to play, and treat them right, and give yeah. people a chance to see them. So East Nashgrass there every Monday night, and I'll stop plugging there, but come see us at D's. Now that's great, man. And you also teach some, you're here doing jam classes. Yeah, I'm a veteran of the Wernick Method jam classes. I've been leading those in Nashville, taught them at the station and teach them at festivals, do camps and stuff around the country since about 2013 or so. So I've been doing that almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. What I loved last night at the mandolin tasting was I don't think you expected to have a seat at the mandolin tasting. And you said, um, I guess I should practice what I preach. You got to get up here with these guys. And um, that's the only way to do it, I think, right? Like, if you want to get better at this type of music, you got to put yourself out there and play with people who play this style of music. Yes, it's absolutely terrifying, completely, <laughs> completely terrifying, but also re really joyous. Just, just sitting next to these guys and listening through a song, you pick up so much. Um, and I'm very much on, on the journey, you know, talking about what everybody was talking about. I got to Monroe way late, went very much backwards and have since fallen in love with his style. Um, and it kind of had a, I learned to play mandolin and really fell in love with like a melodic style and a lot of notes and then got into Monroe style, it's like turning everything I was learning on my head and inside out. And that required me breaking down stuff I was doing and starting over a little bit, you know? So I'm still working on that. That's a lot of work to do that. But luckily we have guys like this to teach us and show us how. Yeah. So um, it's fun to be able to participate up here and still be on the journey. I wanna thank uh, Mike and Heidi for having me and everybody for, for being here. 
Yeah, great. So when you approach a mandolin, you know, Monroe Stung, what's your, what's your kind of approach? I'm guessing, I mean, everybody's got a different approach. Coming at it a little bit later now maybe than some of, the, some of these guys that we talked to, you know, what's kind of your thought process when you pull up a song and you're like, I'm going to work on this today? I think I spent a lot of time when I was younger just kind of listening to it and then not listening to it and just doing what I thought I heard, you know, or what would get me by. You know, I, I like to jam a lot. I live in Nashville and just do something to get through it. And then now I'm at a point where I'm like, no, I'm not doing that right. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like the way it's supposed to sound or the way I hear it. And now I'm just going back and listening to the records and people that do it better and trying to learn it the way it was done. And like I said, that's required unlearning a bunch of mistakes that I made and relearning some good techniques, but it's been really fun to do. It's just challenging and hard. Yeah, well, let me be the first to say you hung in there with every, you would have never known if you would have not said that I would have not known that you were like felt out of place at all. You did great job, man. It was fantastic playing. That's yeah. why we love you, Daniel. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. And last but definitely not least, I, man, Beth Lawrence over here on the bass, everybody. <laughs> Beth, you uh, you sound great up there. So, what is it from the uh, the fifty fifty eight style for you as a bass player? that really that you noticed in this style of Monroe's music that might have differed? I don't know. I mean, I was listening to it a lot coming to the camp, and um, I just got kind of lost in it. There's um, listening to the music before the 50s, and then listening to the music after the 50s, and then all the way through 58, and how it developed. And um, some of the songs were recut, um, and then how the structure changed after 50. Um, really gave it um, some kind of structure, the way the bass was played. Um, and then it kind of allowed the instruments to kind of live on their own shelf, but still interact and have their own zones, have their own uh, place to live, um, and then have some air in between. Um, and I think that there was a busyness a little bit with the bass in some places that were good, and some places that muddied a little bit in the beginning. And then I think some, in some ways, the other instruments took that on later on in the 50s. And the bass would do little things with phrasing almost at the ends of the, of the phrases, at the ends of the, of the lines, even at the ends of verses and choruses. So it would do ornamentation, but it wouldn't do it in places that other instruments could fill and, and take, it, take their uh, take up that space. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting to see how it kind of morphed into its own sound. Um, but it gave it a structure and um, kind of its own footing, like a footers, I guess, or a foundation, I mm -hmm. guess, uh, to build upon. But you heard like a Mule Skinner Blues, you know, with just guitar before that in the 40s, and then in 50 and 51, you would hear it with uh, a bass, which we would listen to today in the bass class, and it still was confusing, but it was entertaining to listen to, and it was hard to follow, um, <laughs> but it was really good. But if I had to follow it and play it, it was, it was hard to follow. Um, and then as time has gone on, there's somewhat of, more of a structure now, um, but I think it, it gave it more of a, ability for a, a band to work together um, and travel and uh, create a sound together. Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally. What's, um, what, uh, what's your background? What, uh, what are you currently working on and what projects? 
Um, I've kind of just been filling in here and there. I've been playing with uh, Rick Ferris some this okay. year and uh, Jim Hurst some this year um, and going back to school a little bit. Nice. So just, uh, yeah. So yeah. I was really happy to be asked to do this. That's awesome. Yeah. I really would rather just be listening. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm really enjoying it. That's great. I'll, I, well, you have, because you have to take the mic out and forth. I'll ask, I'll ask you the, a couple more questions and we'll get to a base example here. But mm -hmm. um, tips for a mandolin player. You, you play with a lot of mandolin players, I'm guessing. You, you rely a lot, you and the mandolin uh, kind of go hand in hand. You're in percussively. You know what's a what makes a good player a great player for you? Stay fluid and uh, listen to each other and lean in and lean out and um, don't just stay with one thing and think that you are the only thing that everybody has to um, work off of. Um, but you're supposed to work dynamically off of each other. Um, you're supposed to dig sometimes, you're supposed to have some air sometimes, and then you're also supposed to play um, leaning back a little bit. And uh, there is a, an essence of survival mode that makes it exciting. Um, but don't, don't just uh, be in your own head, but interact with those you're playing with all the time. Yeah. It's so crazy with music now. It's become so sterilized. You don't think about it necessarily in bluegrass, but you know we've all heard stuff on the radio, and you're like, "Man, it's so stiff." Like, what happened to breathing and moving and letting it? You know, I mean, you want to have it to be in time, but you can still let that stuff let that stuff go. You know, I think people forget about that. That's great advice. So, yeah. thank you so much. Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm really, I'm really, really honored one to be here. To be, to be at this and just to see the love of this music. It really is cool to talk to people who love this style of music because it's not just lip service. I mean, it, you can see the love that you all have of this style of music and that's why you guys are at this camp and why you guys are able to continue following this passion. And I think it's amazing and I think everybody should hear, everybody here should just give a great big round of applause to everybody up on the stage. Um, Mike, before we get into this last song, uh, is there anything that you just want to express about about Monroe or the camp or anything that you want people to know here before we do the last song? No. <laughs> well, what's the uh, what's the last tune y'all want to play for us here? Well, we'll do the camp tune because we've played through everything we were gonna do. Oh, well, there we go. Let's do Big Mud. It's right in the pocket there. And I believe that's a fiddle kickoff, Ainsley. Poor chance. I'll try. All right. No, no don't try. <laughs> do or do not. <laughs>
Jeff Burke, John Keith, John Reichman, Mike Compton, Tim Stafford, Angelie Porchall, Lincoln Hensley, Beth Lawrence, I want to thank Heidi and Mike for having Mandolins and Beer podcast there. I want to thank Todd for running sound. I want to thank the Crooked Road Virginia Heritage Trail and the Southwest Virginia Cultural Center. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>